Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. It is a delight to come to God's Word again, and we look again to the end of the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah. As we look at the book of Zechariah, Zechariah is really divided into two main sections. And chapters 1 through 8 are the first main section delivered during the time of the rebuilding of the temple, which Dr. York finished that up two weeks ago. And then chapters 9 through 14 mark a second major section, which Dr. Light began last week. And this section of chapters 9 through 14 really uh, include two longer oracles or longer uh, prophecies from the Lord about judgment and salvation. Joshua and Zerubbabel, those leaders who helped rebuild the temple, are not really uh, on the scene, it doesn't seem, in these chapters. And most commentators agree that these chapters are probably delivered several decades further on in Zechariah's life when bad leaders have arisen and sin has sprung up amongst God's people. And these oracles call them to repentance and hope, renewing their faith in God's coming Messiah. And chapters 9 through 14 really span the scope of Christ's work. You remember last week from chapter 9, as Dr. Light preached it, that we saw Christ coming in to Jerusalem, the king riding on a donkey. And chapter 14 is going to end with the great day of the Lord, when Christ returns at the day of judgment. And in between, we learn many more details about the Messiah and Israel's response to him. Today, we want to look at two chapters, two shorter chapters, 10 and 11, which are tied together by the theme of Israel's shepherds. Let's read these two chapters. If you have your Bible open or your phones, let's read Zechariah chapters 10 and 11. Here's God's word. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field for the household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies they tell false dreams and give empty consolation therefore the people wander like sheep they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd my anger is hot against the shepherds and i will punish the leaders for the lord of hosts cares for his flock the house of judah And will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. From him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle. Trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. And they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. 
Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. Though though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live in return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be drawed up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders, and I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, because I became impa- but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And then I broke my second staff, Union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek, uh, or the, seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm in his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Father, this is your word that you have given us. I pray that you would apply it to our hearts, that you would magnify your name and call us to yourself in it this morning. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. These chapters are held together by the theme of sheep and shepherds. Most of us probably don't have much experience with sheep, and if we do have any experience with sheep, it's probably in the 4-H barn at a farm show, not as a shepherd 
out in the field. But the Bible argues that when it comes to us as humans, at least our character, the animal we are most like is sheep. Maybe less flattering than we would hope, but I believe it is true nonetheless. Because sheep and humans, we are both prone to wander. We are both prone to anxiety and fear. We are prone to get ourselves into trouble. We are prone to discontentment, thinking the grass is always greener somewhere else. And we are prone to follow one another, even into utter foolishness, sure that the crowd must have figured out something good, even if they're literally disappearing over a cliff in front of us. And if that's the kind of animal sheep are, and if that's the kind of people we are, then life in flourishing for that type of animal all depends on what kind of shepherd you have to guide you. Philip Keller was himself a shepherd. He was born in East Africa and spent much of his time in British Columbia. And later in life, he wrote a commentary on Psalm 23 in light of his experience as a shepherd. And he writes this, he says, The sheep's well-being depends on what type of shepherd he has. In memory, I still see one of the sheep ranches in our district, which was operated by a tenant sheep man. He ought never to have been allowed to keep sheep. His stock were always thin, weak, and riddled with disease or parasites. Again and again they would come and stand at the fence, staring blankly through the woven wire at the green pastures which my flock enjoyed. And had those sheep been able to speak, I am sure they would have said, Oh, to be set free from this awful owner. Well, here in Zechariah 10 and 11, the Lord confronts the bad shepherds of Israel who leave the people afflicted and wandering and promises to care for his flock himself. But this promise comes with an important question. And I think the main point of our passage today can be summarized this way. God is going to send his shepherd to bring salvation to Israel But how will Israel respond to God's good shepherd when he appears? And in making his point, Zechariah takes us through three things. He describes Israel's need for a new shepherd. He promises salvation through God's good shepherd. And then he warns Israel over their response to this shepherd. So let's look at each of these points together. We begin in chapter 10 with the first three verses where Zechariah describes Israel's need for a new shepherd. If you remember back, or if you glance up at the end of chapter 9, God had described the salvation the Lord would bring to his people, and he ended with this promise of grain and new wine. Well, in Israel, the fields and the vineyards were heavily dependent upon rain, especially the spring rains, in order to flourish. And so the question that Israel faced year after year in an age where there were no acre-wide sprinkler systems was where can we put our trust? Will the rain come? We have no control over the rain. Who will we look to for help and to assurance for our livelihood? And Zechariah urges Israel, ask rain from the Lord, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give you showers of rain. Because Israel, what is out of your control, you have no control over the rain, is fully in the Lord's control. He is your God. He is the one who makes the storm clouds. So ask him. 
But of course, God was in the heavens. You can't see God or you don't usually audibly hear his response. And so asking him was always an act of faith. Household gods, on the other hand, were right there. Diviners could give you answers in person. And so Israel was perennially tempted to look for help from the wrong sources. Sources that Zechariah says utter nonsense and see lies and so give empty consolation. And as a result of seeking hope and getting nonsense, lies, and empty consolation, the people of Israel wander like sheep, afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Of course, Israel did have shepherds. They did have leaders. But instead of pointing them to the Lord, they were more concerned for their own comfort and success at the people's expense. And they were often the first ones leading away from the Lord and toward the surrounding nations. And so the Lord's wrath burns against those who should have cared for his people, but instead allowed or even caused them to wander astray and suffer affliction. This is not a new problem for Israel. This is a problem Israel faced throughout its history. You remember back before the exile, Israel's kings had repeatedly laid heavy burdens on the people and led them into idolatry and sin rather than toward God. And back before the exile, God had confronted those kings and those priests and those prophets. You remember Jeremiah 23, where the Lord declared, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. I will attend to your evil deeds. Or Ezekiel 34, where he says, I am against the shepherds, and I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. And God did remove those bad shepherds. And after the exile, Joshua and Zerubbabel were good leaders who helped with the rebuild of the temple. But a few decades on, and bad leadership is back. Nehemiah, who writes just a few years after Zechariah's life, describes Israel's governors oppressing the people with unjust taxes, marrying foreign wives, adopting foreign culture, ignoring the Sabbath, and more. And while some good leaders will arise, over the course of centuries, when Jesus shows up 400 or so years later, what does Jesus find? He finds leaders that need to be condemned, and he announces woe to the scribes and Pharisees who are blind guides who shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And Jesus, echoing the words of Zechariah, looks around at the people and has compassion on them, For he says they are like sheep without a shepherd. And so again and again, God's anger burns against the leaders of Israel. Again and again, God's people find themselves in need of a new shepherd. And the question that these passages beg is when will a good shepherd come to save God's people and lead them in righteousness? And that leads to Zechariah's second point in verses 3 through 12 where God again promises that he will bring salvation to his people and he will do it through a new shepherd. You see, at the end of verse 3, the root of all God's promises and all God's acts where it declares, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah. Here we have a summary, really, of the story of all of history. Apart from Christ, we are like sheep who have gone astray, each our own way. We are led by bad shepherds, leaders, 
and cultures who lead us toward things that do not satisfy and give empty consolation, lies, nonsense, leading us further into affliction and hopeless wandering. But into that affliction, God declares that he cares for his flock. Salvation comes because God himself acts to save his people. And God himself acts to save his people because he cares for his sheep. This is the same thing that the Lord promised back in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, where he declared, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will seek the lost and bring back the strayed and bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. The Lord cares for his sheep and he will act to bring salvation. It's the same truth really echoed in the familiar words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God acts to bring salvation because he cares for his people. Now if you look down through verses 6 through 12, you will see a series of eight I will statements. Eight statements of what the Lord declares he will do that summarize the salvation that God will bring to his wandering sheep. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. I will answer them and their hearts will be glad and rejoice. I will whistle for them and gather them in for I have redeemed them. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt. I will bring them to the land of Gilead. I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name. Over and over, God declares what he will do for his people. And as we look at these statements together, we see God's character described. I will have compassion on them and redeem them. We see the promise of forgiveness in restoration, in blessing. They will be as though I had not rejected them, and they shall be as many as they were before. We see the joy of restored relationship with God when he says, I will answer them and their hearts will be glad. And as God stirs Israel's anticipation of this coming salvation, he uses language in these verses, particularly in verses 10 through 12, that hearken back to the two great moments of salvation in Israel's history, the exodus from Egypt and the return from exile. You see how God appeals to the return from exile when he says that he will whistle for his people and gather them in. They will be gathered from Assyria, a country when Israel was first taken into exile too, and they will be brought back to Gilead, a lush area of the promised land. And he uses Exodus language when he says that he will pass through the sea and strike down the waves and the Nile will be dried up and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. This is what God promises to do for his people. But if you notice carefully, I don't want to miss the key in verse 4. Because in verse 4, God promises to do this through a new leader who would come from him. From him will come this new leader who is strong and secure. And he's described in terms that clearly refer to the Messiah. Look at verse 4. From him the cornerstone. 
And you'll remember that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected who would become the chief cornerstone, a cornerstone who is precious in the Lord's eyes. From him the tent peg. And you might remember that Isaiah promises, I will establish him like a peg and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And from him the battle bow. And maybe your mind goes to Psalm 45, a psalm about the Messiah where we hear your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. And so in these verses, we get another glorious promise that God will act because he cares for his flock. He will act through a new leader, a good shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep, who will come with salvation that brings to completion all that the exodus and all that the return from exile had symbolized for Israel so that those who trust in him will be strong in the Lord and will walk in his name. That's the answer to all of Israel's need. That's the answer to all of Israel's longing. But on the heel of this great promise of salvation, we need to look ahead to chapter 11. Chapter 11 opens with three verses of poetry. They're likely set apart in your Bible in poetic form which describe the downfall of the bad shepherds, describing them or comparing them to great trees, cedars, cypresses, and oaks whose glory is ruined. Wail, cedars, cypresses, and oaks. And the sound is the wail of the shepherds for their glory is ruined. But the question is, the question is, how will the sheep respond How will the sheep of God's people of Israel respond when the bad shepherds are destroyed and the Lord sends a good shepherd instead? And here the Lord brings his first oracle to an end. Chapters 9 through 11 are his first oracle here in this section. He brings it to an end by calling on Zechariah to put on another mini play. You remember back in chapter 6, God told Zechariah to go into the temple and put on this play prophecy crowning the high priest in the temple as a a foreshadowing or a prophecy of the great priest king who would come and establish the Lord's climactic temple. Well, here we are back in chapter 11, and the theater prophecy is back. Zechariah is supposed to act out a message from the Lord. And if I were going to title this play or this this, uh, act that Zechariah is to put on, I I would title it Israel's Response to the Good Shepherd a play in two acts. Let's look at the two acts here. In Act 1, Act 1 opens with Zechariah playing the role of the protagonist, the good shepherd who will come to care for the Lord's sheep. At God's instruction, Zechariah takes over for a flock of sheep that was destined to be killed, put to death, slaughtered by sheep traders. And he leads them with two staffs, one named Favor, representing the Lord's favor toward Israel, and the other named Union, representing the unity of God's people. And he destroys the three shepherds who are over the flock. And we don't know for sure if there was significance to there being three shepherds, if there just happened to be three shepherds, but it seems likely that they may have represented the prophets, the priests, and the kings, all of whom failed for Israel but all of whom are brought together in the person of Jesus, the one good shepherd who comes to his sheep. 
And with the bad shepherds destroyed and the good shepherd installed in verse 8, we expect to see joy and flourishing from this flock who has been saved from the bad shepherds. But instead, the passage turns and we hear that these sheep detest their good shepherd and reject him. And Zechariah responds with impatience and with judgment, saying, I will not be your shepherd. You are destined to die, very well die, and be destroyed and be devoured. And Zechariah breaks the staffs of union and favor, saying that this annulled the covenant he made with all peoples or all nations, leaving the sheep of Israel exposed and breaking the unity of Judah and Israel. Zechariah then approaches the sheep traders for his wages and asks them to pay him if they would be willing. And the sheep traders pay him 30 pieces of silver. Now, since this was the price of a slave or the wages of a slave, it's likely that this was a a demeaning pay. Sort of like if you were to fill in running a company as manager for a while and things go bad, there's conflict in the company and you step away and ask for your pay and the company gives you minimum wage pay for the time that you were there. And so at the Lord's instruction, Zechariah rejects this pay and throws it into the temple, calling it the price at which he was priced by them. And of course, when you read these verses, your mind should be turning ahead to the New Testament where Jesus is priced at the price of 30 pieces of silver paid to Judas to betray him. And Judas, when he is convicted of his guilt, returns and throws the pieces of silver down in the temple. And so this play prophesies that Israel, the people called by God's name, will widely detest and reject the good shepherd that God sends to them. And God issues words of judgment that are are heartbreaking. Words, he says, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none of them. He says, those who will die, let them die and be destroyed and be devoured. And you can't help as you think through the course of history to think of the sack of Jerusalem after the rejection of Jesus in which so much of this language is fulfilled. And so, as you read these words and as you think ahead to the response to Jesus, I can't help but think of the words that Jesus cried just before his passion When he looked out over Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not see your house is left to you desolate. What words of judgment. And yet, even as we read these verses, we are not left without hope. Because in verses 15 to 17, God calls on Zechariah to put on act two of his play. In this act, Zechariah now plays the antagonist, the foolish shepherd, whom God will raise up as a result of Israel's rejection of the good shepherd. 
Most likely, this foolish shepherd is not one particular person, but a representative of all the wicked leaders who oppress God's people. But the hope comes in the final verse, for we find out that the wicked shepherd is not the end of the story. God pronounces woe against this wicked shepherd and declares that the sword will strike his arm and his eye, putting him out of commission. So there is hope in the judgment of the foolish shepherd. But there is also great hope, isn't there, in the tension that we should feel between chapter 10 and chapter 11. Because in chapter 10, we have just heard from the Lord Himself, whose words never return void. We have just heard that He will strengthen the house of Judah and save the house of Joseph, and they shall walk in His name. And we know that despite Israel's rejection of Jesus, by and large, a remnant at first and a flood at last will know the salvation of God that he is bringing to his flock. And so here we have these details of the Savior, the promise of the good shepherd and his rejection by the sheep. There are more details about this Messiah for us to see next week, but I want to spend our last few minutes this morning looking at three brief applications of this passage for our hearts and our lives. First, I want you to reread, flip back to the beginning of chapter 10. Read that first verse again. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain. This verse calls us to the practice of regular prayer at all times for all of our needs. Of course, God knows all things, so he knows our needs before we ask, and yet he calls on his people to pray and to ask him anyway. James chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask. John fourteen thirteen. whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified. Because see, so much of our humility, so much of our trust in the Lord, so much of our growing faith and growing dependence upon Him is trained by the practice of bringing all things before the Lord in prayer. By the practice of coming and asking from Him. Not by habit, not out of routine, not to get what we want, but consciously bringing every need we have to our God because we trust Him. Because he is the one who is in control. Because he can do all things. Pastor Rick Phillips, I think, indicted us well when he said, we tend to be self-reliant rather than God-reliant. And the evidence of this is uncovered in our lack of prayer. So may we cultivate hearts that look to the Lord for all things. And may we cultivate lives lived in constant prayer Looking, as Psalm 123 puts it, looking to God as a servant looks to the hand of his master. May we cultivate this life of prayer. Second application for us this morning. One commentator reflects on these two chapters and gives this summary. Sin is always folly, and the sinner always a fool. For he secures the great evil of punishment in exchange for the small good of gratification and therefore always makes a fool's bargain. We look and see the exchange of 
God for diviners who tell lies. We look and see the good shepherd come and be rejected. And we see that sin is always a fool's bargain. Maybe, maybe others of you, like me, grew up collecting baseball cards and trading baseball cards. And I can clearly remember that there would often be a certain obsession that one of my friends or I would have. There was just one player or one card we wanted so much, we'd be willing to trade our best card or even multiple of our best cards to get what we just felt like we really wanted in that moment. And the rest of us would look at him and say, that was so foolish. Did you see what he just traded to get that one card that's worthless? That's the bargain of sin. That's what sin is. We get so focused, so obsessed with one small comfort or one small desire that we're willing to incur the wrath of God to obtain it. And we see it so easily in the lives of others. We see people running after false hopes, fads and philosophies of the world, substances for rest or escape, or just running from the call of Jesus who alone offers hope because of cultural assumptions or sin that blinds us. We see it in others, but our sin also is always a fool's bargain. Our sin is also a decision when we convince ourselves that this time our anger is justified, or our indulgence, or our falsehood, or our fear, or our assertion of our rights. This time it's justified, but will we see our sin for what it is? a fool's bargain that is never worth it? And when we flee from our sin to Christ? Finally, as we read chapters 10 and 11 together, we are all forced to confront this question. How will we respond to Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd? When the Good Shepherd appears, who gives his life on the cross to take the penalty for sin, who rises to give life to those who trust in him, will we come to him in faith? If so, Zechariah promises strengthening, gathering, rejoicing in the salvation of the Lord. But this passage makes it clear that others will find him offensive or unnecessary and will reject him. And speaking to those That great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, cried out this way, Oh, my hearers, will any man choose to be lost? Your blood be on your own heads. Go down to the pit if you deliberately choose to do so. But know this, that Christ was preached to you and you would not have him. You were invited to come to him, but you turned your backs on him. You chose for yourselves your own eternal destruction. God grant that you may repent of such a choice for Christ's sake and come to him. And so to any who are here or who are watching this morning who have not put their faith in Christ, I would echo these words and say, oh my hearers, do not turn your back on Christ, but come to him. So as we close this morning, May we glory in the salvation we have received if we have trusted our Savior. And may we come to him and put our trust in him for salvation if we have not done so before. Let's pray. Oh God, what a God you are. 
who look down and see us for what we are, sheep in all of our foolishness, engaged in continual fool's bargains, pursuing our sins, wandering and going our own way, led by false shepherds and utter nonsense. And we are afflicted and hopeless apart from a Savior. But, oh God, how we thank you that you care for your sheep, that you have come and have brought salvation, that you have worked that salvation through Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. Oh, may we trust in him. May we rest in him. And as we rest in him, may we be nourished. May we rejoice in the salvation that you have given and the hope that we have and the comfort and forgiveness we find in him. And Father, as we know that forgiveness and that salvation, would you continue to work in our hearts to give us greater hatred of sin and to give us a greater trust in you expressed in daily lives of prayer that you might be glorified. And we pray this in your name and for your sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.